This is Bloomberg Law with June Grosso from Bloomberg Radio. A former police officer in Minnesota, Kim Potter, is facing a second-degree manslaughter charge for the shooting death of a 20-year-old black man, Dante Wright, on Sunday. Police say Wright was pulled over for expired tags, but they tried to arrest him after discovering he had an outstanding warrant for failure to appear in court on charges that he fled from officers and possessed a gun without a permit. There have been four nights of protests over the shooting, which was captured on videotape. The city's former police chief says Potter mistakenly fired her handgun when she meant to use her taser. Both the chief and Potter resigned on Tuesday. Wright's family members and black community leaders are calling for more serious charges. Nikima Levy-Armstrong, a civil rights lawyer and activist in Minneapolis, says Potter should be held to a higher standard. Kim Potter is a 26-year veteran. The fact that she was a field training officer, and she should have known better um, in terms of distinguishing between a taser and a gun. I do not believe that it was an accident. Joining me is former federal prosecutor Ellie Honig. What's your reaction to the filing of the charges so quickly? Everything is moving very, very quickly with this case. The First of all, the police released the body camera within 24 hours of the incident, which is faster than I've ever seen body camera footage released. I think that was a good and necessary step. Then they brought the charge just days later. The initial charge right now is a manslaughter charge under Minnesota law. It essentially charges what we call culpable negligence, meaning that the officer created a grossly unreasonable risk. Not that the officer intended necessarily to kill Mr. Wright, but that she created a grossly unreasonable risk. So that'll be an interesting question for the jury. Is there any possibility that that the prosecutors may add charges as time goes on? That absolutely is a possibility. Prosecutors frequently, especially in a high-profile case or where there's some need or impetus to make an arrest quickly, will charge the most readily provable, sort of most easily provable, lowest charge just to get a charge on the books to make an arrest. And then as the investigation progresses, prosecutors not uncommonly will add charges or upgrade charges or in some instances downgrade or even dismiss charges as the evidence dictates. And just as one example – This was done essentially with Derek Chauvin in the George Floyd case. He was initially charged with actually the the same manslaughter charge that's now charged against this officer, uh, as well as a third-degree murder charge. And then later, prosecutors added a higher charge, a second-degree murder charge. So, So that's quite common. Does it seem, though, that this charge is the appropriate one here? Because looking at the footage, it seems like however reckless it was, it was a mistake. It wasn't intentional on her part. So this is why I think this charge is appropriate at the moment. An act can be both accidental and negligent. So, for example, if somebody were to get behind the wheel of a car while severely impaired and then, God forbid, hit a person and and kill that person, that would be an accident. The driver didn't didn't intend to hit and kill somebody, but it also would be culpable negligence. It would be manslaughter because by getting behind the wheel with a severe impair in severely impaired condition, you are creating an undue, a gross, unreasonable risk. So there is room in the law to charge somebody with a crime, even if it's an accident, if that person also acted grossly negligently. This is such a high-profile case, but in other circumstances, it seems like it would be a good case for a plea deal. 
look, the vast majority of cases do end up pleading guilty. This case could be different, however, because the stakes are so high for both sides. I mean, on the one hand, there's a lot of value, I think, from the prosecutor's perspective in getting a guilty plea because you lock in the conviction, you get the person to admit guilt. On the other hand, for the former police officer who's been charged, if she gets convicted, she's looking at up to 10 years in prison. And if she sees a way to sort of cut her risk and take a plea deal and maybe limit herself to a much shorter time in prison, I think she'll have to think hard about that. There's been some reporting that Derek Chauvin tried to get a plea deal. Do you have any information about that? Well, I've seen what's been reported publicly, that he was interested in pleading guilty to a 10-year charge, but then William Barr, who at the time was Attorney General of the United States, said no. And for anyone wondering why would Bill Barr be involved in this, this is a state charge, because any defendant in that position is only going to take the charge if he knows that he won't be charged by anybody else, because the Fed still can charge Derek Chauvin. And so, in other words, as a practical matter – the Chauvin and his lawyer would say, look, we're not taking a plea unless the state of Minnesota signs off and DOJ signs off because I don't want to plead guilty in Minnesota and then get hit with a new charge by the feds. And so Bill Barr said no. Uh, and I think he probably made the right decision there because I think 10 years would have probably been widely perceived as, as not justice, not, uh, not sufficient for Derek Chauvin. Coming up next on the Bloomberg Law Show, I'll continue this conversation with former federal prosecutor Ellie Honig. And we'll take a look at the Derek Chauvin murder trial. The defense wrapped up its case today without putting Derek Chauvin on the stand. So how did the defense do? Were they able to score any points? Not well. I, I don't think the defense has done spectacularly well in any sense. First of all, we, we have to keep in mind, no defendant ever has any burden of proof whatsoever. Defendants can put on no case at all and just say the prosecution hasn't met its burden of proof beyond a reasonable doubt. That actually happens. I've done trials where the defendant has said, no case, Your Honor. We're just going to argue they haven't proven it. Um, so every defendant has the right to do that. That said, Chauvin has decided to try to put on a fairly robust case here. I just am not persuaded by the witnesses. I, I don't believe the jury will be either. You had the medical witness who testified essentially that George Floyd's death was caused by everything but Derek Chauvin, up to and including carbon monoxide, which when cross-examined, he revealed he had no data, no science, no facts behind whatsoever other than the fact that George Floyd was down by a car, which we don't even know if it was running. So I don't think the defense experts have been remarkably persuasive. But again, remember, it's not an athletic event where you ask who has more points. All the defense has to do here is, is create reasonable doubt. This didn't live up to the battles of the experts that I've seen in a lot of trials. I mean, is there a reason why it seems as if the prosecution's experts were much more qualified than the defense? Well, typically a case being high profile, I would just think logically would, would attract more attention, right? Because experts would want to be seen and say, look at me. I testified in this famous trial that you've all heard of, so hire me in the future. If I had to guess, I would say a lot of it is probably just the merits of the case. I think it's hard to find a police officer, for example, who will come in and say, I found Derek Chauvin's use of force to be appropriate and necessary, like that one witness, Broad, who was his last name, did. I thought that was very dubious testimony. I think it's much, much easier based on the many police officers I know personally. They all think that this was an unreasonable use of force. So I think it's, it's largely a function of the facts. And one thing that's important to remember, June, 
expert witnesses are not magic. Uh, the jury will be told specifically, you are not to give an expert witness any more or less credibility or credence than you would to any other witness simply because they're experts. It's just a label we put on them that allows them to give their opinion. But you can and must evaluate their testimony. Is it reasonable? Is it logical? Is it supported by the facts? As you would any other witness. So although these witnesses have the label expert on them, the jury is still free to disregard them. Considering the resources of the, that the prosecution has put into the case and the resources that the defense has, but it seems like the prosecution has just overwhelmed the defense with the number of attorneys, the preparation of the witnesses, etc. Well, I, I agree the prosecution has put on more and better evidence than, than the defense, keeping in mind that the prosecution bears that burden of proof beyond a reasonable doubt. Um, I do think it's actually interesting, the numbers game here, the four prosecutors versus the one defense lawyer. I actually don't love that dynamic for prosecutors. When I was a prosecutor, we were always wary of looking like we were overdoing it on a case. And we never put more than three prosecutors on a case. And only the biggest cases, I mean your major organized crime or terrorism cases, would even have three. Typically, you have two prosecutors because we didn't want to look like, well, why is half the office here doing this case? And I think it's also an interesting strategy by the defense to only have one lawyer. We've only seen Eric Nelson stand up for the defense. It looks like he has an aide or somebody there in the courtroom, but that sort of paints a picture of a man alone, you know, sort of nobly defending his charge. That said, I think we're talking about sort of your courtroom dynamic more than anything else. Um, one thing that we don't know that it, it would be interesting to me is what kind of resources does Derek Chauvin have here? A lot of times police officers and former police officers are able to use um, money from unions, even if they're out of the union now. Um, it's not clear who's paying Eric Nelson's bill. It's not clear who's willing to work for free. Some of the prosecution witnesses, the experts, said they had volunteered to work for free because they felt strongly about this case. So I do agree, though, there's been a mismatch in both the quantity and quality of evidence. But again, remember, it's not who has more and better evidence. It has the prosecution met its burden beyond a reasonable doubt. Something that I found extraordinary is the testimony of George Floyd's brother in what's called this spark of life, which allows the prosecution to give life and dimension to the victim, something that you don't normally see in most cases until it's time for sentencing. That was very unusual testimony because most courts in the country would not allow it. Minnesota has this unique, or I don't know if they're the only state, but Minnesota has this unusual law statute, this spark of life statute, which actually was passed decades ago um, in relation to a case involving a murder of a police officer. And the legislature decided that in case in murder cases, the jury should get to hear from a relative of the victim to humanize the victim. But in most jurisdictions, including federal courts, that would never be admissible because it's sympathy. Uh, it's, it's, it's an emotional appeal, but it has no relevance to the disputed fact. I mean, what what George Floyd's brother um, remembers about him and, and how fondly he remembers him and how much he loved him has no, strictly speaking, no logical connection to whether Derek Chauvin's acts constituted murder or not, but this is a law on the books in Minnesota, and I thought the prosecution used it effectively without overdoing it. I thought they were smart to call the brother Felonis um, because he was emotional, but he, he wasn't over the top, and, and I think you want to be wary there as the prosecutor of 
appearing too overtly to try to play on emotions because ultimately emotion matters, but most juries, when it comes down to it, are looking pretty closely at the facts. And, and I think attempts to bring too much emotion into play can, can backfire. So there was some speculation that Derek Chauvin might take the stand. And considering that the defense has not been going as well as some might have thought, but he decided not to. Do you think that was a wise decision? I do. I, defendants very rarely take the stand in their own trials. I know in movies and TV, we always see that dramatic moment when the defendant takes the stand and has to defend himself against the prosecutor. But reality is defendants rarely do take the stand because it's so, so risky. I, I guess the only argument in favor of Chauvin taking the stand here is, well, perhaps if he got one juror who liked him or felt sorry for him, that juror would decide uh, not to vote guilty, and that could result in a hung jury. Remember, a, a jury verdict has to be unanimous, 12-0 to convict or acquit. Anything in between is a deadlock, a hung jury, and a mistrial, which is, as a practical matter, a win for the defense. So that would be the sort of Hail Mary nature of this, but it would have been so risky for him to take the stand. I mean, the prosecution likely would have been able to cross-examine him on prior uh, complaints against him for force. Uh, they certainly would have played that video for him, and it would have been devastating to have to you know, make him watch that video after George Floyd has stopped speaking and stopped moving and so said, you're still on him here, right? You, you, know, you hadn't heard him speak in a minute. You hadn't heard him speak in two minutes, and you kept that knee on, on his neck. Uh, it would have just been a scathing cross-examination. I think it would have been too risky, and I think it was probably the prudent move for him not to testify. Thanks, Ellie. That's former federal prosecutor Ellie Honig. After successfully transitioning to remote work for more than a year, many businesses are rethinking the future of a fully in-person workforce. Twitter and Microsoft are among the tech companies that have said some employees can continue to work from remote locations permanently even after the pandemic is controlled. But suppose your employer insists that you return to the office full-time. What are your options? Joining me is Michael Schmidt, Vice Chair of the Labor and Employment Practice at Cozen O'Connor. The overarching question is whether an employer can force employees to go back to work after they've been working from home due to COVID. So the general uh, answer to that is uh, whether you're asking about a simple return to work or if you are asking about whether an employer can require that an employee be vaccinated um, before returning to work. The, the overarching answer is really the same. Employers at the moment are able to require employees to return to work subject to obligations to accommodate uh, both uh, disability issues as as well as sincerely held religious objections to coming back to the office or, or getting vaccinated as a condition to coming back to the office. So as far as disabilities, are you referring to disabilities under the Americans with Disabilities Act or other disabilities that may arise because of COVID? The important thing to take away is that we're not just talking about federal law. Part of the issue is, and what makes this somewhat complicated, like other areas of employment law, is that this area is so dependent on state and local law as well. So you're looking at the Americans with Disabilities Act on the federal level, certainly, but you're also in states like New York or California and, and other states uh, that have their own statutory schemes dealing with reasonable accommodation requirements and uh, disability discrimination protection. So if somebody has a particular medical condition, physical or mental, 
that for some reason precludes them from going into the office or in the case of a vaccine, precludes them from becoming vaccinated at the time. Suppose someone's a senior citizen and doesn't want to return to the office because of fears that they're more vulnerable to COVID. Would that require some kind of accommodation? Well, that's where it gets a little tricky because you need to distinguish those who have uh, a covered disability, a covered medical condition versus those who just have generalized fears about leaving the home or generalized fears about going to the workplace simply because they have this generalized fear or simply because they may be part of a group uh, such as of a certain age uh, or a certain vulnerability. So, you know, part of the difficulty is having to distinguish between those buckets. And for those people who don't have a covered disability that entitles them to potentially an accommodation, uh, employees are not able to necessarily just say, well, I'm uncomfortable or I have a generalized fear that something might happen. Uh, and therefore be protected from, uh, from, from complying with a rule that they need to come back to the office. Suppose they believe that their workplace is not safe, that the workplace is not taking enough precautions against COVID. Well, certainly we're going to see a lot of that. Um, you know, there are going to be a lot of employees who either return to the office or don't return to the office. And based on what they see or hear or understand, they're going to be raising issues regarding protocols and safety. People may not be wearing masks or the company is not enforcing social distancing requirements or other protocols. Uh, so much of this is about balancing uh, communication and the psychology of all this. It's not just about what is the law technically require one side to do or not do, there is a psychology that comes along with the workforce that employers need to accept. And there also has to be some understanding that employees, those uncomfortable or not, are going to be raising issues like you just mentioned, and it has to be a means for addressing them, for taking them seriously. Uh, and that's what employers should do. They, they should have an avenue for people to raise concerns or raise complaints about protocols and other safety issues. Uh, at the end of the day, if the employer does look into those issues and uh, does follow best practices and available guidance, and again, it just becomes a situation where the employee is saying, I'm just not comfortable coming to the workplace, I'm just not comfortable leaving the home and working, um, and no accommodation is needed and there really is no um, particular protocol or issue that uh, is is challenging the safety or health of the workplace, um, the employee may not be protected in those situations. What about the employee reporting the conditions to OSHA? That's certainly another avenue. Uh, it's all about communication. Uh, I, I find that uh, many issues can be addressed and resolved between employer and employee, but there's no question that there are government agencies out there, including OSHA, uh, who are there to receive complaints that employees may have about unsafe uh, workplace conditions. Uh, and that's certainly uh, an opportunity for employees to raise it externally if that's what they want to do, in which case, you know, OSHA or whatever the federal or state agency uh, will be, will likely contact the employer and do its own investigation into the issue. Suppose an employer fires an employee because they won't return to the workplace. Are they entitled to unemployment? I know that President Biden said something about this. Are they entitled to unemployment or are there certain parameters? 
Well, that's the, the unemployment issue, uh, notwithstanding the, the discussion on the federal level, the unemployment issue is also very much a state-by-state state concern. So uh, the rules will vary depending on the particular state you're in and the state unemployment scheme you're talking about. But from a general rule standpoint, as we know, typically if somebody resigns and resigns without reason uh, or refuses to work, um, they're not going to be entitled necessarily to unemployment insurance. But what many jurisdictions are doing and what the, the federal government is talking about doing is making an exception there if the reason that you are not coming back to work is due to uh, a good faith belief, uh, good faith objective belief uh, that there is something about the workplace you're being asked to return to that is not safe and is not healthy for you to do so. In those cases, if you refuse to return to that kind of workplace, uh, in many situations, uh, you will not be denied the opportunity to uh, obtain unemployment insurance. Going back to vaccinations, which you mentioned, let's say an employer says all employees have to be vaccinated before returning to work. If an employee has a religious objection, what happens? The EEOC, which is a federal government agency that handles disability-related, Title VII-related issues and accommodations, the EEOC put out guidance this past December on this very issue, mandatory vaccine policies. And putting aside the disability issue we just talked about, if an employee has a sincerely held religious belief or practice that prevents them from being vaccinated, the employer is required to engage in, in an interactive process to see if an accommodation can be given without there being an undue hardship or without there being a a direct threat by not being vaccinated. This is very much an individualized assessment. An employer uh, should not be simply knee-jerk in its reaction to that kind of objection being raised, uh, which also means that they can't just automatically fire them or discipline them for refusing to be vaccinated. They'll have to go through this process of, well, what's the nature of the position? Can the position continue to be worked at remotely? Um, What are the essential functions of the job? So the bottom line is there needs to be an interactive process in response to any religious objection being raised. And only after that process is exhausted uh, and the the appropriate boxes are checked by the company, can an employer perhaps discipline up to and including termination, uh, terminate an employee based on a religious objection to getting vaccinated? Suppose it's not a religious objection. Suppose an employee just has a generalized objection to vaccinations. Do they also have to be treated in the same way? Well, very much the same answer as uh, with the disability issues. And and I can tell you there is this lingering issue out there that a lot of people aren't necessarily talking about, and that has to do with the whole emergency use authorization process that these vaccines were approved uh, by the FDA in the first place. And as part of that process, the FDA rules suggest that recipients of a vaccine uh, must be told that they have the right to refuse to get a vaccine. So there are a lot of us uh, out here that are waiting for additional guidance from the appropriate government entities as to the relationship between those FDA rules and an employer's ability to have a mandatory vaccine policy or uh, engage in certain workplace rules. But putting that issue aside, to your specific question, it's very much the same as the disability context. If someone just has a generalized objection, they're against vaccines, 
vaccines or too early in the process where I'm not that comfortable to get vaccinated just yet. Those are not concerns that are typically protected by law that have to be accommodated at the moment. Have you been getting a lot of inquiries from employers during COVID about problems they're having, management issues with people working from home? I have. And and this is certainly the time where a lot of companies are thinking about the types of questions that you're asking, Uh, thinking about, you know, we'd love to get to a place in the world where we can come back to whatever normalcy there was pre-pandemic and start to get some of the benefits that we had by having uh, in-person interaction and team meetings and mentoring mentorships physically in the office while recognizing, as I said before, there still is this psychology lag where people are not completely comfortable uh, returning to the office just yet or not completely comfortable getting vaccinated yet. So they're trying to figure out should they have any type of mandatory return to work or mandatory vaccine policy and if so, when they should do it. Um, I think most of the employers that I've been speaking with uh, are leaning toward promoting the benefits of vaccination, perhaps in many cases creating uh, appropriate incentive programs to have employees get vaccinated. Um, But I still think as we're here in April of 2021, uh, I think fewer employers are yet going the route of uh, imposing a mandatory return to work and a mandatory vaccine policy right now. Uh, I think the biggest issue, again, is is sort of, you know, this balancing act and recognizing that it's not all legal, uh, that there is, you know, a lot of practical and a lot of psychological uh, impacts that that are at play here. And at at, at the end of the day, if you are going to be mandating any of these things, whether it's returning to the physical office, getting vaccinated, you do have to keep in mind the requirements for accommodating disability and religious objections. Thanks, Mike. That's Michael Schmidt of Cozen O'Connor. And that's it for this edition of the Bloomberg Law Show. Remember, you can always get the latest legal news on our Bloomberg Law podcast. You can find them on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and at www.bloomberg.com slash podcast slash law. I'm June Grosso, and you're listening to Bloomberg.